Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor results for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, We have a very special guest with us. Uh, Today it's myself, David Renteln, and Dr. Sammy Hamdouche. Hi David. Hi Sammy. And with us today is Dr. Scott Sherman, and uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself now. Hi, David, and thanks very much for having me here. I am a currently a professor at NYU School of Medicine in the Department of Population Health, as well as in medicine and psychiatry. I spent 14 years at UCLA School of Medicine and then moved back to New York in 2005. Awesome. Thanks very much. So... One of your many areas of expertise is in following uh, patient populations and helping uh, them with smoking cessation. Yes, I've been doing research on that for close to 25 years right now, but also it's been a longstanding interest in uh, helping people one-on-one quit smoking as part of my patient care. Awesome. Yeah. Um, So... I think, uh, you know, if you don't mind, we're going to ask you some questions and uh, really unpack uh, everything that you've been up to, or not everything in the last 25 years, but as as much as we can. Sounds Um, great. Awesome. So why don't we start uh, with where you began in your journey uh, in studying uh, smoking cessation and uh, hopefully end up with uh, some of the recent projects that you're carrying on today. Sure. I actually started off my career as an exercise researcher looking at whether people who exercise live longer and whether the same benefit applied to women and to older adults. And early on at UCLA at the Veterans Hospital there, I was frustrated that there wasn't a smoking cessation program. I worked with some colleagues who had been trying to start one and I created one that I ran for the 14 years that I was there. But my research interest grew from that. I shifted from exercise to uh, helping people quit smoking. The smoking clinic was great because we got 50 referrals a month, but it was pretty clear that we needed to do something much broader to reach the thousands of people in, in the healthcare system that were smoking. So I started off first with a large multi of 20 site study in the Veterans Administration to help implement smoking cessation guidelines. And over the years that's evolved to looking at fundamentally, what's the best way that I can change the system to deliver more treatment that helps people quit smoking? That also would include how do I get uh, people who smoke, who use the healthcare system to be more interested in quitting? How do I get doctors to see that this is really a, a, not just a fundamental part of their job, but something that they can and should do? Sure. So maybe you can unpack that last statement a, a little bit for me. Um, it would seem to me or uh, maybe to our listeners intuitively that most primary health uh, care providers would encourage smoking cessation. So what do you mean there? So 
that's definitely true. Um, and it's neat to see how things have evolved over the last 20 years. When I started at the hospital in uh, early 1990s, it was really only rarely that uh, physicians uh, advise patients about quitting smoking. Even the primary care doctors mostly didn't do this on a regular basis. But culture has changed so that across a whole bunch of health systems, pretty much everywhere, and I think it it is very routine that the primary care doctors would help people to quit smoking. The catch is getting having it be more than just simple, brief advice. So the the numbers behind that is if I look somebody in the eye and tell them I really think they should quit smoking, I can get two, three, five percent of people to quit. If I spend more time, I can increase that number a bit. And if I add medications on top of that, I can increase it further. Um, if I have them go to some multi-session interdisciplinary program, I can get it even higher up to 15 or 20%. So that's really been the catch is how do I get doctors or how do, how do I restructure the system to get more than that 15 seconds of advice to try and maximize the likelihood that people quit smoking. And do you feel that uh, a large reason why many uh, primary health care providers struggle to spend more than 15 seconds on it, if at all, is because it's notoriously difficult to achieve success, so they view it as a lost cause, or they, they don't have the necessary framework? Um, 20 years ago, the problem was that even primary care doctors didn't have a lot of training in this. Very few medical schools had any curriculum on helping people quit smoking or change behavior at all. Um, but happily, that's changed so that pretty much every medical school now includes decent training on this. Could be more, but it's, it's certainly decent and a, a huge jump ahead of where we were. Um, so it comes down more to competing priorities and how do you fit this in? When I see people in primary care, many of them have six, seven, eight active healthcare problems. And this is one other on the list. And in many settings, visits are very brief. So I can't expect, and I used to, when I started off um, teaching the residents, I would ask them to spend three minutes counseling. And I completely gave up on that because for, for, for some people in practice, a visit is 10 minutes long. So to spend 30% of that on smoking, most people wouldn't be willing to do. I would be willing, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm one of the zealots. So it's really designing systems that leverage the, the sort of the key impact of the provider, physician or other healthcare provider while still make, making it effective. Um, let me go into that a little bit more detail. The way we currently see it working in, in, in our system, it's very easy for the provider to refer somebody. They can just click a couple buttons and that refers them to our program. But what we expect the provider to do is to look the person in the eye, say, you know, I really think you should quit smoking. This is one of the most important things you can do for your health. I'm going to have somebody contact you. And I'm going to also give you this prescription to help, help you quit smoking. That way we keep it to, I think it's really essential not to cut the doctor out of the loop. We've done that in some studies, but it, I think it's really important that the person that the patient knows and trusts the most tells them that this is important. But then we, I can redesign the system to basically have a counselor spend 10, 15, 20 minutes with the person by phone over time. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. So one question I have is um, when you talk about bringing the success rate up from 
a few percent, five uh, percent to you know fifteen to twenty percent. You know, obviously that's a huge improvement. It's you know triple or, or more, um, but it, it's still you know you're you're talking about eighty percent of people that um, are not going to be successful. And so you know, what observations do you have around um, what differentiates successful quit attempts versus the unsuccessful ones? Um, you know, in terms of being able to reach uh, reach those smokers um, in a way that, you know, gets them to actually quit? It's a great question and one that I implicitly or explicitly hear from smokers and providers all the time. It's like, you know, I tried to quit three or four times before and it, it, I, I don't seem to be able to do it. Um, the science is that the average person who, who successfully quits smoking has tried on average, half dozen or more times before. And I think that people learn something from each of those attempts. So the more, and I reframe it for smokers that way, it's like, don't view those as failures, view those as learning opportunities. You learn some things that worked, some things that didn't work and try and do it better more the, the next time, more successfully. As to why, sort of what key features would make this attempt more successful than another one, Nobody's got the magic answer. And I think I differ from some of my colleagues. I have a lot of colleagues who look to, they want to take that 20% uh, interdisciplinary program success rate and they want to get it higher and higher, uh, 30, 40, 50%. But so far, nobody that I've seen has been able to do that. And most of the studies w will be very small increments. So they might take it from 20 and get it up to 23 or 24, 25%. My approach is sort of the opposite. I'd rather get people to try quitting multiple times. I don't know of a way that I can double the success rate beyond that 20%, but I know of plenty of ways that I can double or triple the, the number of times that people try to quit. So over time that I will get many more people in the population to quit smoking that way. That makes sense. And I guess as, as a, a follow-up, you know, it seems like number of attempts or frequency of attempts um, could really move the needle there. But in, in some sense, if someone's hearing the message too frequently, maybe they uh, are, are less sensitive to the message. Is there a way that you vary the message depending on um, how many times they've, they've heard it before, how many times they've, they've tried to quit? Not, I don't really vary it a lot based on the number of times they've tried to quit, but I do help them trying to think about what's going to, what, what will we do differently this time? So when I'm, when I'm spending uh, time talking with the smoker or when the counselors are, um, we often get them to think about, you know, the last time that you quit or the last few times, what was, what went well and what didn't go well? What do you think you might do this time to do, to take those difficult areas and make them different? Um, I think that's uh, sort of to try and make the attempt different, which I think is likely to have them uh, increases the chance of a better outcome. But I don't usually say, you know, oh, this you've tried six times, so let's make seven. We need to do something very different for number seven. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, in addition to increasing the number of quit attempts, uh, going back a little bit to what we can do to increase the efficacy of each individual quit attempt. And obviously, you use uh, different forms of NRT uh, in your work and uh can you describe uh, a little bit about how you include NRT uh, and things like nicotine gum uh, in this process? 
um, the sort of the Bible for what works in quitting smoking has been the public health service guidelines, which were last updated in 2008. But the answer is still pretty much the same. What works is medications, counseling, and follow-up. And follow-up I mentioned as part of a multi-session program. Counseling is something beyond that 15 seconds that I said we wanted providers to do. And medications also work. My general view on medications is that of the seven FDA-approved medications out there, they all at, at least double your chances of success. And so therefore, when I teach people, the providers about this, I don't focus too much on, you know, this medicine is better than this medicine. I focus on getting them to make sure that they use medications. When we do studies, I've used all seven of the forms, five forms of nicotine replacement, bupropion and varenicline. When we do studies, I tend to be doing large studies with hundreds and thousands of participants. And one of the things that steers me towards using nicotine replacement for that is that three of the five forms are over the counter. They've been reviewed by the FDA and felt to be that the benefits of them greatly outweigh the risks, and so that these are generally safe in the same way that we use over-the-counter pain relievers or cold medicines, and that makes it easier for me to think about delivering an intervention to a a thousand or more smokers. Within the different forms of nicotine replacement therapy, they all work roughly equally well, but they each have different sort of, you know, the patch has one uh, sort of people slap it on in the morning, wear it for a day, and then uh, switch it the next day, as opposed to the gum or lozenge, where people use more throughout the day, either chewing or, or sucking on the lozenge. And so the bottom line is that they both work, but I, I talk with people differently about how to use them. So um, one interesting uh, observation about NRT um, is the studies that have um, been conducted on uh, on smokers that show that you know a majority of smokers believe that um, nicotine is actually the harmful constituent of cigarettes, and I wonder if that's something that you hear from studies you've done or or, or patients that that uh, you've treated is you know why would I use nicotine replacement when it still has nicotine. Yeah, I mean, it is a perception many people have. It's not true from my perspective. Um, That was part of what led nicotine patches to going over the counter. I was part of the multi-site study that led to them going over the counter in the mid-90s. And in that study, we gave randomized people to nicotine patches um, or placebo for uh, smokers with who had heart disease and other similar problems. And the study showed that it was really very safe, sort of reassuring us that even in the people where you would think nicotine would be the most risky, it didn't seem to be the problem. And I've seen that, I think the literature supports that over the years, is that long-term use of nicotine doesn't seem to really be associated with any meaningful harms. Could there be a tiny one? Yeah, we, but we haven't really seen convincing data on that versus the overwhelming harm from continuing to smoke. Uh, when, we, when I think about most of the problems that smoking causes, it's not the nicotine that's doing that. Otherwise, people would get that from using nicotine replacement, which they haven't. So I feel that it's, I, I don't worry about the nicotine at all when I'm getting somebody to quit smoking. 
And I try and frame it to them that way. When I was working in a drug treatment program, I would have people come in and work with them to quit smoking. They'd be like, no drugs, no drugs. <laughs> and I, so, you know, if, if you were going to Atlantic City or Las Vegas and I had something that would double your chances of winning at the, in the casino, would you do that? And they're like, oh, of course. Like, well, this is the same thing. The tobacco companies have spent so much time getting you addicted to this product. Why not use something that's going to double your chances of quitting? And that's really what all the forms of nicotine replacement do. They double your chances of successfully quitting. And, and just checking, you don't actually have something that would double my chances in Vegas or Atlantic City, do you? <laughs> no, if I did, I would be using it myself right now. <laughs> okay, just just wanted to clarify. So yeah, that that's super helpful. So I think, you know, one of the... Uh, other things that was pretty interesting to us was uh, watching the uh, the change of those uh, guidelines surrounding NRT products. Uh, I think in 2013, where the FDA said, "Now are, we're going to change our guidance around NRT to some extent. Use it for as long as uh, the patient finds it to be useful, and even use it in, in combination with other nicotine-containing products, even tobacco products." Um, can you explain the rationale behind uh, those recommendations? Yeah, from my perspective, I mean, when I when we first started using uh, nicotine patch and gum and other other products and studies back in the '90s, the big worry was that people were going to be uh, continuing to smoke and using these, and that they would have heart attacks and stuff like that from the combination of both of them. And it turned out not to be the case. I think when people have gone back and done more sophisticated analyses there are people who do have heart attacks while using nicotine replacement and smoking. But on analyzing it further, it was the smoking that was the culprit, not the nicotine replacement. We already know smoking causes heart attack and if uh, heart attacks uh, as well as other problems. And if you continue to do that while using nicotine replacement, it's no surprise that that may still continue to happen. So I think that's part of what led the FDA to say, to loosen things up a bit. Uh, because I, I really had lots of patients back then who were trying to quit smoking. They would have a few cigarettes as part of during that time. And they're like, oh, got to stop using the nicotine replacement because I had a few cigarettes. And so it would be this downward spiral that they would smoke a little bit, use, the product, uh, use a, an effective product less, and then smoke a bit more. And so it, I think that's... Since there didn't seem to be a harm, there was like, why not keep using it? So I think that was the underlying rationale. Got it. And have you seen data that suggests that, uh, well, it, I mean, it sounds very similar, I guess, what you, you just mentioned, which is that uh, potentially, you know, having uh, some NRT around you if you feel tempted to smoke, even if it's much further in the future than when you officially, quote unquote, quit that potentially that could limit relapses? I mean, there's, I believe that. I've not seen a lot of sort of really carefully designed studies on preventing relapse beyond. I mean, there's some of the studies I see on preventing relapse really are just to me more of getting people to quit smoking in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, you know, ensuring that they use medications and counseling over the first few months. But I think psychologically it makes sense to me that particularly for the first six months or so people are their quit is probably more fragile than it would be two three years down the road and people need their own strategies for what how they're going to deal with cravings and urges that they get 
And if popping a piece of nicotine gum or a lozenge uh, helps them to deal with those occasional cravings, that doesn't bother me in the least. Um, I want to kind of um, go back to one point that you mentioned before, which is the response that some patients have when you prescribe them NRT uh, or other smoking cessation drugs is, you know, I don't want to take any drugs, um, which is interesting because they are, in a sense, taking a drug by continuing to smoke. They're just doing it in using a very dangerous delivery vehicle. And so, you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what drives that sort of disconnect between, you know, the understanding that they're, they're taking a drug, um, they're still taking nicotine, via cigarettes versus, you know, via a mechanism that's, um, you know, more regulated and, and proven to be, you know, safe and effective? Um, I would love in some ways if people were logical creatures, but we certainly are not. You see people, I and mean, one of the tobacco products that's sold a ton in the last several years has been organic cigarettes. It's like, oh, because people want to make sure there is nothing harmful added to the cigarette that they're smoking, which is already one of the most deadly products out there. It makes no sense to me, but yet the sales have risen dramatically. And I hear that, but I hear that again and again from patients, not all of them, but like, oh, I, I don't want to put any chemicals in my body, but I'm going to have a cigarette when I have my beer. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it seems like from what you're saying that the counseling part of getting people to quit, it's very much emotionally driven. It's, you know, you're looking them in the eye and making, trying to make a connection with them to tell them, you know, it's really important that you quit instead of, you know, a, you know, kind of a story that I like to tell um, about my, my grandfather who quit smoking, I think in his, in his fifties or sixties, um, he, um, you know, was living in Algeria at the time and, you know, they don't get the same, uh, information at the, at the same rate that we do here in the U S. And so he went into his doctor's office and his doctor told him that, uh, that smoking was bad for him. And he was really surprised. And he said, what? And he threw away his pack of cigarettes and never smoked again. <laughs> Um, but obviously that doesn't work for most people, I would imagine. And, uh, and it's, it seems like a, in a very, uh, a very emotionally driven, um, process. Um, yeah. And undoubtedly there were people who in the, in the U S who quit smoking, um, when they found out it was bad for them. But I think we've lost most though that all happened already. And the surgeon general's report came out in the early sixties, uh, highlighting the harms of smoking and I'm, that there were a bunch of people who quit then. But at this point, and it's been years since I had somebody that I saw where I said, you know, I really think you should quit smoking. This is bad for you. And they, um, as your relatives, basically like, I didn't know this was bad for me. <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't happen in the U.S. They may not believe it's bad for them, but even that I often find is not really the case. It's so that is more often them rationalizing uh, their behavior to themselves. So it is emotional, but there, there's a few parts at work here. I think there is clearly a physical addiction to nicotine for many people who smoke, but not all. When people smoke a couple cigarettes every other day, they're not addicted to nicotine. But the people who are smoking a half or a pack a day, many, many or most of them are addicted to nicotine. And that means that when they stop using nicotine, they get withdrawal symptoms. That's what the addiction means. And most smokers who are at that level 
uh, the first thing they do when they wake up is they have another cigarette. But probably the bigger problem is the habit. There's all sorts of books on the market these days about habits and how to change them because our brain gets kind of hardwired uh, about these things. The tobacco companies were very aware of that, so they went out of their way to help make it as reinforcing as possible with the taste and the smell and all sorts of other things. So when I'm trying to get somebody to quit smoking, I'm trying to think through all of that. How do I help them get over any addiction they have? But how do I get them to change this? First, be interested in changing the habit and then to succeed because changing behavior is not easy. Definitely. So I have a question about um, the interesting trade-offs essentially uh, in the harm reduction argument as it comes to smoking cessation, the sort of principles of harm reduction hold true across a variety of drugs. But how do you think about vapes and their rising prominence and the trade-offs that it seems uh, are occurring between initiation of new users versus uh, efficacy of smoking cessation? Certainly a great and very current question that with the tremendous rise in use of vapes and e-cigarettes over the last 10 years, and this was something that 15 years ago didn't really exist, so nobody was thinking about this. And there had been harm reduction studies, but that was with, for instance, a reduced nicotine product or trying to get people to smoke fewer cigarettes. From my perspective, the fewer cigarettes hasn't really worked. And so if you take somebody who's smoking 20 cigarettes a day and get them to cut down uh, to 10 or even five cigarettes a day, I think there's data showing that they uh, inhale more deeply and uh, smoke those cigarettes more to try and extract as much nicotine as possible from them without even realizing it. That's the brain trying to maintain its level of nicotine. So the because I have patients where they're like, oh, I'm down to smoking five cigarettes a day. And partly they're probably getting more nicotine than they think they are, but also there's a threshold effect with some of the risks where even a few cigarettes still put you at risk for a lot of the complications. So that approach didn't seem to work well to me to try and taper down unless the plan is to taper all the way to off. And that's been a whole separate stream of research. But Vapes run the raise the possibility maybe we can get people get all of the combusted products out of there and just have people use vaporized nicotine. It solve it takes care of the addiction issues because they're getting nicotine again. There's been tremendous debate in the field over the last five years, and still is a lot of debate in the field over this. So what I'm saying is my opinion, but also based on a lot of the literature out there. I think pretty much everybody in the field agrees that for somebody who is smoking, switching completely to uh, e-cigarette or vaporized nicotine is way less risk than continuing to smoke cigarettes. We debate over whether it's 90% less or 95 or 85% less, but it's hard to imagine anything as dangerous as continuing to smoke. So even if e-cigarettes have some long-term complication that we find out about in 10 years, it's hard to imagine it being as bad as continuing to smoke combustible cigarettes. Different issue is what about the people who are, who were smoking say 10 cigarettes a day and cut and use an e-cigarette and then managed to cut down to three cigarettes and they're continuing to use an e-cigarette. 
That I'm not quite sure is harm reduction because they now have two products. They didn't really get rid of the cigarettes. And when I've seen my patients do that, when I see them six months later, they're often back to where they were smoking, sometimes in addition to using the e-cigarettes. So that wasn't a good harm reduction approach for me. But I do feel that if we took um, current smokers and switched them over completely to e-cigarettes, that would be a huge public health win. My studies still all focus on smoking cessation using medications and counseling because we know that works. There's great long-term data that that makes a big difference. We know ways to do that. Uh, we're sort of still in the early stages of figuring out how that compares to e-cigarettes and sort of both short and long-term. You also talked about initiation, and that's a huge issue these days with uh, rates of e-cigarette use skyrocketing among adolescents. If e-cigarettes have the potential to uh, lower risk uh, by reducing harm in smokers, that's not at all the case in adolescents who weren't smoking and begin to use them because there's no harm reduction there. That's just harm increase. We certainly need to do all the things that we did for combustible cigarettes for e-cigarettes. So do everything to keep them out of the hands of adolescents, including checking age, uh, addressing retailers who sell it to people under 18 or 21, depending on the state. But the big issue has been of the people who do, as teenagers, start to use e-cigarettes. How many of them will continue to do that? Will they switch over to combustible cigarettes? That's everybody's biggest fear. It seems to be not as big a fear as many people thought two or three years ago, but that's still lots of research going on in that area. And particularly given the recent products. That makes sense. So as a thought experiment, let's say that e-cigarettes are 95% less harmful than cigarettes. Would you be willing to snap your fingers and have four times the number of people in society uh, all using e-cigarettes and nobody using cigarettes? So if we had, say, 40 million smokers in the U.S. right now, um, and I could snap my fingers and there'd be zero cigarette smokers, but 160 million e-cigarette users. Yeah. I would. I'd do that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Because if I feel it's 95% less, I'm still dealing with a lot less morbidity at the, and mortality at the population level. I don't think I'm going to get a chance to make that trade, though. <laughs> Well, what do you think about that Hawaiian uh, law that was proposed of raising the cigarette uh, purchase age to uh, 100, was it? Did you see that? <laughs> I did. That was, And people have talked about that. Uh, I think Australia or New Zealand had a proposal going forward with the same type of thing about raising the age progressively so that for the current children and young adults, they would never be old enough to buy tobacco. It's certainly appealing It does because people who smoke, and I see this in the healthcare system, like, I have a right to smoke. Well, of, course you, of course you do the way things are currently. Um, and I don't think anybody's talking about banning cigarettes the way we banned alcohol during Prohibition. Uh, that led to its own issues. But this is a different and interesting idea. Basically, what if we just grandfathered people out and let the, the smokers, current smokers either quit or age out? 
hasn't been done yet, but I would love to see what happens if it, if it, if it is done. And of course it wouldn't, I mean, I'm in New York city and it wouldn't uh, work to do that in New York because people would just potentially go to New Jersey or Connecticut to get cigarettes. So it's something that needs to be done in a more comprehensive way. Interesting experiment. Yeah. I mean, that's somewhat similar to the, the uh, proposal coming out of the FDA, which is to basically lower the nicotine content in cigarettes to, you know, uh, non-addictive or, or minimally addictive levels while uh, allowing other, you know, r- sort of reduced harm nicotine products to have higher nicotine levels uh, in an effort to encourage people to, to, you know, sort of go down the spectrum of, of risk for these products. Do you feel like that's, that's an effective approach to, to, uh, to solving that problem? I think it would be a tremendous approach, and I think it would be very effective at the level of the whole population. Uh, I think what happens for the people who experiment with cigarettes uh, in their late teens or early 20s, and we still have thousands of people starting smoking every day and every month, for many of them, they say, oh, I'm not going to get addicted. And my daughter was saying, like, oh, I wasn't planning on getting addicted. And I'm like, well, oh, remind me, which people are planning on getting addicted? <laughs> and I think for many of them, by the time they decide that this isn't for them, it's too late. They are physically addicted to the product. And having low or essentially no nicotine would completely eliminate that. The people, the people who did try this, if they decided after a month that they were tired of it, could just sort of snap their fingers and they'd be able to stop because of the, without the addiction part, still the habit to change, but at least they would only have one part of that to change, not both the habit and the addiction. Right. Yeah. I mean, I personally always just worry about, uh, the development of black markets, uh, like you mentioned in the prohibition of people, uh, growing tobacco plants, uh, in their home the same way they do for cannabis historically, uh, or people dipping low nicotine cigarettes into some sort of nicotine solution because there's probably some threshold of people that that will want to smoke no matter what, and we should probably just try to do everything that we can to to bring that as close to zero as possible, but more with uh, a carrot uh, of better products rather than the the stick of of prohibition. Um, But, you know, speaking of cannabis, I have uh, another question to ask you, uh, and potentially could upset some cannabis enthusiasts, but I I wonder when you think about, you know, a lot of the harms coming from smoking, having to do with the uh, inhalation of combustible materials, do you have any concerns about patient health and lung health with the increasing availability and and legalization of of cannabis? It's a fascinating and timely question. I mean, I've been very eagerly watching the results from uh, Washington and Colorado, the early states, to legalize use of it. Like with everything, I think we're likely to have some increase in harms, but some increase in benefits. It raises issues, and if adolescents start using more cannabis, that's that's there's issues behind that. If older adults switch from less sort of drink less alcohol and use more cannabis would we see fewer motor vehicle accidents and it's those type of questions that i think are fascinating um in terms of direct harm from more combustion uh i haven't seen a lot of data on that 
Uh, I think we will likely see certainly more studies. Nothing, I don't think there'll be anything as dramatic as cigarettes, or we would have seen it 20, 30, 40 years ago, because uh, cannabis has been used uh, with a lot of people using it for decades and decades. So we, it's not like there'd be huge harms that we've missed. People have looked. So I'm thinking more at the public health level, like I mentioned, ro uh, road accidents, other intoxication things, uh, which are all part of the risk and benefit equation. Got it. And okay, that that's super helpful and that, that makes a ton of sense. And so while we're talking about uh, some other products uh, in the periphery of traditional cigarettes, there's been, it seems, a lot of lobbying by the cigar industry uh, against the FDA to say that some of these new guidances should not necessarily apply to them uh, because, uh, in theory, they haven't been the, the principal agent of harm, that it's more of a adult product used occasionally. How do you feel about your patients using cigars? You know, my grandmother uh, used to tell me that she wouldn't be upset if I had a cigar once a week. We see a lot of data uh, from non-daily smokers, as you briefly alluded to, that even occasional use of, of tobacco can be harmful. Of course, cigars are not supposed to be intentionally inhaled, but probably some does, uh, just in passing. So I guess the short question is, how do you feel like cigars fit into this whole debate? It's been interesting watching the... I think increase in cigar bars and other and sort of marketing of cigars, magazines like Cigar Aficionado and things like that. And because they've really sold it as a luxury item, like, oh, treat yourself, have a cigar once a week and your mother will be happy. And I don't think that's how they're advertising it, but um, it does raise the issue of, you know, what uh, is the, how bad is this? I do a lot of research on water pipe tobacco or hookah, and we were doing focus groups on it. And one of the issues we raised was that in terms of like getting people to quit, uh, thinking about the harms of it. And one of the young adults, was a bright young man from a high, high quality college said, you know, once a month I eat p three pieces of pie at the same meal and I probably shouldn't. And smoking hookah is kind of the same thing. I do it once a month. What's the big deal? And I, that's what I see as your question as well, is if I light up a cigar once a month, how bad is that? For the people who do inhale, my recollection is that it's something like 70 times more potent than cigarettes, uh, cigars themselves. I'd have to go back and look at the exact number, but it is a lot more than just a, a, a cigarette. And we also know that secondhand smoke causes harm and death that of the 475, 480,000 deaths a year, I think something like 100 or 120,000 deaths in the U.S. are due to secondhand smoke. And if somebody's lighting up a cigar, generating huge quantities of smoke, same as with a water pipe, you're breathing in all that secondhand smoke. Obviously, it's not as much as if you're around somebody day in, day out. But I think most people are at the feeling that there's no safe level of exposure to cigarette smoke. Otherwise, people would get away with, well, why can't I smoke in the office once in a while? Mm -hmm. And we've given, and that's long gone. That makes sense. Yeah. So essentially, cigars, uh, at the very least, you're giving yourself secondhand smoke uh, from your cigar. That reminds me of uh, 
a, a sort of sad but amusing anecdote. Uh, I hope I'm getting the story right, but I believe General Ulysses S. Grant posed for a victory picture after concluding the Civil War, and he posed with a cigar. And that resulted in admirers from all around the country sending him cigars when he was not actually a, a regular cigar smoker. And because he had such a treasure trove of so many cigars, he began smoking them regularly. And I believe he ended up dying of esophageal <laughs> cancer. Oh, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that, but it, it, it sort of, I'll have to take a look. An interesting story. And it, sort of knowing how history goes, it wouldn't be surprising. Yeah. So let's see. I, I think uh, we're uh, going through or have gone through most of our questions. Sammy, is there anything uh, that um, you wanted to ask? But haven't Yeah, you? kind of more of an open-ended question. Um, but uh, yeah, I know sometimes the uh, debates in science and academia uh, can be sometimes quite heated. Um, are there any views that you hold that your colleagues tend to, to roast you for that are particularly controversial? No, because I would be right and they would all be wrong. <laughs> um, no, I, so in being a primary care physician, there's a bunch of things in medicine where we pretty much know this is true and a bunch of things where there's absolutely no data. And then a, a third category where there's some data and you kind of have to make the best decision you can. And sometimes the time proves you right and sometimes proves you wrong but you made the best decision you could at the time. I think where we were with e-cigarettes three, four years ago was one of those points where there wasn't a lot of data, but there was some, I think there's more now so that my feelings about taking people who use combustible cigarettes and switching them completely over to e-cigarettes is likely to, it's hard for me to imagine that I'm gonna be completely wrong about that. But I, but I could point to colleagues who would say that I am wrong about that, that, that there, they would say that there's no acceptable amount of those ever. Again, I sort of come back to the population level arguments, or if I get, have a thousand smokers and I can get them all to switch over at the snap of my fingers, that how much harm I will prevent versus the more nebulous thing about the, you know, but w why didn't we just try to get them all to quit smoking in the first place? That's always my goal. If I have a choice between harm elimination and harm reduction, I always want the harm elimination. But sometimes at the population level, I'm making compromises about, you know, harm reduction is better than nothing. So I think I tend not to be the one with the radical opinions out there. But, um, but also many of my, uh, many people I know, so, sometimes the problem is we're, we're arguing, we're arguing without realizing it about different things. I'll be talking populations and somebody will be talking about individual people. And it's sort of a different argument, just to use one example. Yeah, that's helpful. That makes perfect sense. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for educating us. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me here. Great questions and a lot of fun to talk about this. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today on another episode of How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy.co. We're a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We hope that you learned something today, or at the very least, were entertained. And we'll be back very soon with our next episode. Thank you.